Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. So welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today, we have Kevin Bupp. Kevin has been investing in real estate for 16 years and is the founder and CEO of Sunrise Capital Investors. They invest in mobile home parks, parking lots, apartments, offices, and single family homes across the US. So thank you so much for being on the show, Kevin. Yeah, Charles, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to, uh, to being here. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, well, you have a very interesting story about how you, uh, how you got into mobile home investing and you started in real estate investing and multifamily. Can you give us a little background on yourself, both personally and professionally, before getting involved in real estate investing? Yeah, absolutely. Again, thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, so it, it actually even starts, uh, I'll go back a little bit further multifamily because I, I went through the, the stages that a lot of folks go through when they first get started. And I started with single family because that's, that's what a mentor that I met back when I was 19 years old. That's what that's what he did. He did single family and small multifamily where, you know, in Pennsylvania in a small town where I grew up. And so uh, I've always been of the mind, like, you know, don't try to reinvent the wheel, right? Just uh, if, if there's something that's proven that works, just go ahead and, and model after that. And so that, that's essentially what I did. Um, it took me about a year and a half to buy my first property after essentially being mentored by this individual, like outside of going to school and, and tending bar in the evenings to kind of make ends meet. I was working for free as an intern whatever you want to call it. Basically, I was trying to be around the same with David as much as possible so I could learn his business and what it was he was doing and how he was making money. And, uh, and again, bought my first property about a year and a half thereafter. Uh, I, was, I was 20 years old and it was a single family property. And, you know, for the first couple of years of my investing career, I was, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money. I literally had $7,000 in the bank from, I'd saved up tending bar and that's what I used that along with a private lender I'd met, you know, helped me fund that first property. And I realized very quickly I was out of money. Um, and it was, you know, David's model was buy and hold. And I realized very quickly that that couple hundred dollar a month positive cash flow, it was going to take me a long time to be able to buy the next property. And I was literally, I used every penny I had to, uh, to, to do that first one. And so what I really turned my model into, uh, Charles was a, you know, buy three properties, wholesale two of them, keep one, buy three properties, wholesale two of them, keep one. I mean, it, sometimes it, it, it changed. I had a wholesale five and I'd keep one, but Bottom line is I would wholesale as much as I could to stack some money and then I would keep one whenever I had enough additional liquid uh, liquidity to continue buying and, and wholesaling more. And so that that model carried on for a couple of years. And then I, I moved down to Florida from Pennsylvania and I met a lot of folks that were doing much bigger things. I mean, bigger than my small town, Pennsylvania. And um, they really opened my eyes to the world of of private lending. Although I had a private lender up in Pennsylvania, it was a very different uh, beast when I moved down here to Florida. Lots of a different, lots of additional opportunities, a much bigger marketplace, many more investors making big things happen. And so I just, again, I went back to modeling those that were doing bigger things and, and doing it right. And so I built a very large portfolio of single family properties, um, slowly transitioned into multifamily properties. This is all prior to 2008 crash um, and built a, a very large rental portfolio. Um, uh, fast forward, you know, 2008 was a, was a very much a struggle uh, for that and a couple of years there following. Um, lost a lot of the portfolio that I had built and, uh, and, 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 you know, started a few other businesses outside of real estate just to keep the roof over my head. And, um, 
you know, the fire never went away in real estate. You know, I was in damage control for a couple of years, but you know, the fire never stopped burning. And, you know, in 2011, I, I finally acknowledged that, that fire and uh, I decided to really do a, um, you know, a self-reflection on what had worked and what didn't work, you know, what I would do differently moving forward. And I realized very quickly that single family just was not, it was not an efficient business model. It worked well for the time I did it. Um, on paper, I had built up a big, you know, a uh, big net worth and it went away very quickly, but it was just a very inefficient business model. And it took a lot of effort and energy to build a substantial portfolio in that space. Back then, prior to the crash, I was single, I wasn't married. Moving forward, I got married in 2010. We were talking about having kids. And so I had to do things in a little bit more efficiently moving forward. And multifamily seemed to be the answer. Like that seemed to be the way to like rebuild very quickly uh, at a much larger scale, much quicker. And just really during that, that kind of journey of, taking that next step or that, you know, the, the, the first step in the second phase of, of my professional career, I was introduced to mobile home parks and uh, just very accidentally, just like most things that happen in, in our lives, as long as you're present and you're aware and you're conscious, you know, good things will come your way and you just have to be able to acknowledge them when they present themselves. And, um, and this was through a, by a gentleman named Randy. It was a mutual friend. Um, Randy had uh, been a banker for 30 years, uh, bought mobile home, but bought three mobile home parks after he retired. And, uh, I was introduced to my mutual friend and I just went and had lunch with Randy with no interest in his business. I had no interest, Charles, in mobile home parks at all. I just enjoy expanding my network and meeting new people. And um, I met with Randy for, for two hours and uh, he couldn't stop talking about how great mobile home parks were. You know, he piqued my interest in many different ways of all the different aspects of why they are kind of a, a you know, a, a superior investment to many of the other types of real estate out there. And I, again, I like every type, you can make money in every type of real estate asset class, but he then just kept pouncing on mobile home parks and how great they were. And so honestly, so much that I was so um, intrigued and energized by our, our two hour lunch meeting that I left the meeting and I kind of committed myself internally to, I'm going to learn everything I can about this and I'm going to go buy one in the next year. I'm going to buy a mobile home park here in the next 12 months and I'm going to either prove how great they are or prove how bad they are, right? One or the mm -hmm. other. And that's what happened. That was the first one. I, it took me 14 months, a little bit longer than what I anticipated. Um, I missed out on a couple of deals along the way because I got cold feet and bought the first one back in 2012. And that was up in Atlanta, Georgia. I still own that one today. And uh, fast forward now, we've got parks in 13 different states and um, we've been doing it for now for, you know, going on a decade. It's been eight years and um, that is our core competency. That's what we spend uh, almost all of our time on um, and, you know, outside of a few other investments, but like that is what we do. That's our business as a whole. So your company invests, like you said, in a number of different asset classes. What is the current investment strategy for, for Sunrise Capital? Um, when you're looking at these properties, so you're focusing on mobile home parks, um, number, and how are you also like, uh, how are you finding them as well? Is it a yeah. lot to direct the owner or brokers? Yeah. And, and the first question about, you know, us investing in much, many different property types, now just to get some clarity. We, we only really specialize in mobile home parks and, and just very recently um, just started acquiring parking assets. So parking lots mm -hmm. and parking garages, but that's a very new part of our business. Mobile home parks is the core. I personally own uh, a number of uh, uh, passive investments in many different types of asset classes, self-storage, medical office, uh, retail, multifamily. Um, but those aren't what we do as a business. That's, that's, okay you know, very, very passive. Um, our active part of our business is mobile home parks and, and okay. parking. And so uh, as far as, you know, how we find them, you know, we, um, for many years, we, we uh, most of the things that we purchased were direct to owner. Um, you know, mobile home parks, the 
the mobile home park world has changed a lot over the past eight years since we've been in it, meaning that it was very much under the radar eight years ago, um, even up until about three years ago. It was very under the radar, you know, not, not many large institutional players. Um, it wasn't the next hottest thing. It was just kind of a, it was a good old boy network. Like if you, if you bought a park and you knew it was doing well, like you didn't, not that you didn't share the word. It's just most people didn't even want to hear it. Right. Like yeah. it's not as sexy as multifamily. It's not as sexy as, as shopping centers and pretty much every other, any other asset yeah. class. It's just not sexy. Right. And so most people would normally just snub their nose and not give it the time of day. That's, that's very much changed. It's done a 180 degree turn. Now it is, um, it's a major asset class and uh, there's lots of competition, lots of bigger buyers and what have you. And so back to the original answer I was looking to give is how we used to find them and, and how we still do, but um, about 80 to 90% of what we did up until a year or two ago was direct to owner. So we do a lot of cold calling. Um, you know, direct mail used to work really well. It doesn't work as well anymore, but cold calling is, is probably our, our, our number one way of acquiring opportunities. And it's not just a one cold call. It's a, you know, we do the, we take the same roles a broker might, you know, we, identify particular parks, build relationships with the owners and stay in contact with them for a very long period of time. Um, a lot of times our deal cycle could last two to three years, you know, from the time we have a first point of contact to when we actually buy their property, if we do buy it. Um, and so, and then on the flip side of that brokers, they're a, a key component of our business as well. So, you know, they're out there pounding the payment all day long and uh, looking for opportunities and we'll come across ones that we might be missing on. Right. And so um, both of those ways are the primary ways that deals come our way. Interesting. How is the financing with it? Is it, I mean, we have all this kind of, uh, we call it gold standard, like agency debt, right? Yeah. With multifamily. What, how does that work with uh, mobile home parks? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and up until, up until five years ago, I would say that it was very challenging. It could be challenging to get uh, parks finance. Now, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been in our space for, for, for many years. However, their, uh, you know, if you look back five years, their criteria was very strict. Like they would literally only lend on the creme de la creme. I mean, like it had to be a five-star you go community, um, you know, all double wide homes, you know, paved streets, two car parking pad sheds. I mean, like it had to be a premium community, which, um, only represents a small percentage of those throughout the U.S., right? You know, five-star classification. And um, over the years, uh, they've come to find that uh, mobile home parks are a great asset to lend on. They've got a really low default rate. They had, you know, the lowest default rate aside from self-storage during the downturn of 2008. Um, and so uh, over time, Fannie and Freddie have both gotten a lot more lenient with their lending. And so there's lots of opportunity to get you know, the gold standard um, of, uh, of, of debt on a property, assuming that it's stabilized and it's in a good market and um, it's a good quality asset. It doesn't have to be a five-star. They'll, they'll lend on things even down to like a three-star. So, and then aside from Fannie and Freddie, uh, again, that's really speaking to more to like a stable community. Um, you know, more for the value add plays, there's, you know, plenty of different local and uh, regional and national lenders, banks that will uh, lend on mobile home parks. There's life companies, you know, uh, that will lend on mobile home parks. I got bridge lenders. Uh, and then you also got CMBS uh, that will lend on mobile home parks. So there's lots of lending options out there. It just really depends on the asset itself. You know, what current condition it's in, how good are the financials? Is it stable? Is it distressed? Um, the market it's located in, lots of different factors. Again, just like very, very similar to multifamily. Right, right. Yeah, you'll find someone to lend you money on it if you can, if you found the right deal. And yes, you have, if you, exactly. If you want to pay all, you know, the interest rate, which is very interesting is, um, you know, the older I get, the more it's important to me for finding businesses that have moats around it. And I remember my dad was a multifamily investor and someone brought to him, I remember I was in like middle school or something, he brought a, um, 
like a junkyard auto salvage yard to him to sell to him. And I was like, why dad, would you want this? But, and he's like, you can't build any more of them. And I never thought about that. And it's something with mobile home parks is very similar. No one wants a mobile home park in their, in their backyard. No one wants a salvage yard in their backyard. So how, how are new parks? Are there new parks being built in the U S I imagine they're for those, you know, like you said, five-star um, how is that today? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, mobile home parks are the one asset class that is the only asset class that have a uh, uh, declining supply, right? And so there's more parks that are being torn down or redeveloped um, than that are coming new onto market. And so there are, I don't know the number that, that, new, that new parks that get built each and every year, but I can tell you that um, the ones that are getting built are very high quality. They're not your typical, you know, run the middle affordable housing, workforce housing. I mean, they're really nice communities because you've got to, you got to deal with a couple of things. You got to deal with the not in my backyard syndrome, right? Like the, the whole, like, I don't want that built next to my house. And so like it, it's, in fact, I've got a close friend that's building a community now. Like they just broke ground um, a couple months ago up in Washington state, but it's a gorgeous community. I mean, it's got a playground, it's got a pool, it's got a clubhouse. It's all double wides. These double wides start at like $190,000. I mean, it's, it's affordable in that market, but it's also equivalent to entry level housing, right? As far as like very similar to what a stick built might go for and in that same range. And so, and it looks like a stick built community. Um, and so you've got that to contend with. And then in addition to that, you've got municipalities, right? Like as far from a taxing uh, standpoint, uh, you know, mobile home parks take up a lot of uh, horizontal space, lots of ground there that they cover. And the tax base that a municipality might expect from one is very minimal, right? Like the improved land itself, there's not a lot of improvements, not the same as that would go into a three-story apartment complex or a mixed-use property. Um, that same footprint could typically, in a, in a densely populated area or, you know, in a uh, largely populated municipality, could be, the tax base could be much higher in just about any other use than that of a mobile home park. And so you got that, con you know, that to contend with as well. Um, and so a lot of times municipalities might have another reason of why they're, you know, not approving it, but a lot of times it really comes down to money. Like what's the best use um, of that land and, you know, what's going to benefit them the most from a tax perspective. In addition, the people that live there, who's going to spend the most money in our area, in our town, in our city? Is it the yeah. people that live in the mobile home park or the people that live in a A-class apartment complex, right? So you got all that to contend with. And so very few get built on a regular basis. And the ones that do are very, not, not high, high end, but like they're they're much more akin to a, a, a subdivision, a single family subdivision than that of a mobile home park, workforce right. housing type arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. That perfectly makes sense when they're doing like the subdivision plot maps and stuff. They want to make mm -hmm. sure that uh, the people coming in there are going to be spending money and adding to the tax base. That's um, right. Their you know, highest and best use of property. Uh, the what's your strategy when you're purchasing a property then are you say you're, you're purchasing uh, so many uh, a, a park and do you want to make sure that you own the the, uh, the actual homes do you want to own some of them do you want to own none of them how does that work yeah no that, that's a great question as well and um, you know in a perfect world uh, we wouldn't own any of the homes right like it, it, it and that's one of the attractions to this this business is when you just own the mobile home park the residents own the homes themselves when there's an issue with the roof or the plumbing or the AC or anything whatsoever that has to do with that unit, they're not calling us. They're calling a vendor to take care of it because it's their unit, right? So very similar to that of a, of a homeowner. That's what they are. They own their home. They just happen to be renting the land underneath their home. And so again, in a perfect world, that's how it goes. And, and that's how originally, that's how mobile home parks were built way back in the day. If you built it, they would come, you know, and uh, a developer could just build the infrastructure. And back then there was a lot more, uh, many more consumer 
uh, debt options available for the end consumer that want to buy a mobile home and move it into a community. And so, you know, a lot of developers could build these communities fast enough. And so like you build it, it got filled up. And then uh, that, that model has really changed over time. A couple of reasons is, you know, the big one is there's not, the, the debt's not the most attractive um, for the yeah. consumer side. And so, uh, if that individual actually has really good credit, more than likely they probably could go disqualify for a stick built home, you know? And so um, you know, if you got someone that's got a 680 plus credit score, there's other options for them. And so the ones that, that, that fall into the lower end bracket of credit scores that are looking for that more affordable option, um, they might be paying a 10 or 11 or 12% interest rate, what have you. And so again, just not as many options for consumers to buy a retail home and move it into a community. And so with that being said, um, what occurs a lot is when we purchase a community, a couple of things, a couple of different uh, scenarios ultimately could play out. Um, in, 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 there's many communities we've taken over where, you know, maybe it started off as 100% uh, homes were owned by the homeowners. And then over time, maybe someone passed away uh, and, and their heirs didn't want that home. And so now just by circumstance, the community acquires that home. They have a choice to either rent it or sell it, you know, sell it to another end buyer. Some community owners decide to rent them and they end up acquiring a number of them. Others, the smarter ones decide to sell it and kind of keep it as a tenant owned home community. Now the flip side of that is you've got a lot of communities as well that you'll find there's vacant lots. And so I might give you an example, a hundred space community, uh, maybe sometime over the years, you know, people moved, but that owner never proactively helped more people, you know, attracting more people back into the community. And so you got, let's say 20 empty lots, they're fully developed. They've got infrastructure. Well, there's not good consumer debt available. So not many people are moving their homes in. And so the only way you can fill those lots up, cause you want to, you want to increase the revenue of that community. And so you want to get homes on those lots is for the owner of the park to actually go buy homes, to go physically buy either new or used mobile homes and bring them in. And then again, you have that same decision of, do you want to sell them? or do you want to rent them? And it really depends on the marketplace and what have you, of uh, which one is the, you know, the best business model for that particular community. And so with that being said, we own about 2000 lots today and uh, about 10% of our inventory, not by choice, about 10% of our inventory is made up of homes that we own, you know, homes that we have to fix the AC, do turnovers on. It's just, uh, it's not as attractive of a business model for us as it is to just rent the dirt out. Right, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so 2020 has been a very turbulent time for us between COVID, the economy, uh, riots, everything else that's going on. How has it affected your portfolio and how are you, uh, how is your company maneuvering um, going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. I can tell you that uh, I think uh, I'm not alone when I say that I lost a lot of sleep in March, mid March, you know, leading into April, not knowing exactly how, um, not just the, our residents, but just, you know, residents in general, um, multifamily, residential, uh, land, uh, retail, I mean, all the above, right? How they were going to respond and how they were going to manage this, um, you know, this, this uh, um, uh, catastrophe that was happening. And, you know, thankfully the, you know, uh, the stimulus plan kicked in. And so a lot of our residents that might have been out of work uh, or lost a source of income, a lot of them, uh, not just ours, but again, across the board have been able to receive, you know, uh, unemployment benefits and then some additional benefits on top of that, that are pretty substantial, uh, you know, at least, especially in the world of workforce housing, a lot of our residents might be making more money or they were making more money on unemployment than that of maybe their job. 
And so I think that, that definitely, um, that, that curbed uh, uh, the bleeding uh, substantially. I mean, we, our collections were down a little bit uh, on average two to 3%, um, but that was across the board, you know? So some communities were better than others. We had many communities that, had no, no delinquencies whatsoever. And then others, we had an uptick. And so, but generally speaking, things have been great. You know, things have been great. And uh, we really worked, we proactively worked with all our residents. I mean, we were, you know, we set up a dedicated COVID-19 hotline where we literally took one of our staff and like that, that's all her job was for like three months is doing workout plans and making sure that we overly communicated saying, Hey, if you think you're not going to be able to pay, please let us work with you. Like we don't, we do not want to displace you. We don't want to, you know, have you lose your home, what have you. And so um, we just tried to be incredibly proactive and just be there and listen and, and, and you know, offer options for the residents that, that needed the help. And so up until this point, uh, Charles, things have been fine. I, but I, I will say that um, I do have concerns with, and not just for our industry, for I'd, I'd say any residential landlord, you know, anyone that's in that business of renting residential properties. I do think I, um, I, I think there will be some pain felt, um, uh, you know, when that, whenever the time comes when the the stimulus, I know they haven't they haven't figured out phase two of it yet, exactly how much it's yeah. going to be, and like they're still working through that. And so, like we're already starting to create this delta, you know, that's probably creating some angst and anguish and pain, you know, with uh, with, with people that are out of work. Um, but whatever that kicks back in, and again, that will be another band aid. But whenever that really does run out, whenever the stimulus runs out and people stop receiving the the, the additional. Uh, unemployment, uh, unemployment benefits, because the standard unemployment benefits, uh, you know, just, they're not enough to really live. I mean, they're just not. Um, and so whenever that ends, I think that that's when, um, you know, the real test will become a who can truly pay the rent. Because I think at that point in time, we'll probably find ourselves in like, you know, 10, 11% unemployment rates, right? I mean, there will be jobs that no longer exist that these people cannot go back to, right? So that's, that's where my concern lies, not just for us, but for, for, for yeah. you and for everyone else that's in rental real estate. I think that's where the pain truly comes to, to light. Yeah. I, I don't think it's, yeah. I, yeah. Like you said, I don't think it's going to come to light until then. And we have no idea at the end of where we are at the end of 2020 um, before the election, so many stuff that's going to be happening uh, in this last quarter mm-hmm. of 2020. And um, it will just, we'll just really see, how stable properties are and how stable tenants are at that point. So it's just working with them, like you said, which is the best way to, for everybody involved. Yeah. So. And I think if you have, if you have a job, if you have tenants, like if they have a job where they have the ability to work from home, then I think that they're, they're much safer. Right. I mean, cause you know, but if it's a job, if they're in a service center, if they're, you know, they're, they're waiters, waitresses, or, or just work in the retail space, that's getting, you know, there's layoffs left and right stores are shutting down. If there's any type of service related industry that you physically have to be present, those are obviously the industries that are getting just clobbered right now. And uh, those are the ones that, more than likely there will not be a job to go back to. And so a lot of that's going to relate to probably more workforce housing and possibly even up to like maybe B class, B minus. Um, and so I, I do think that I know that normally the A class is what a lot of people say, you know, gets hammered the hardest, right? There's like this trickle down effect. And I'm not sure I, I necessarily think that will play out given the cer- current circumstances. And so a lot of the A class folks, a lot of the white collar individuals have the ability to work from home. Most of them have the ability to work from a laptop. And so I think a lot of those jobs have a lot more flexibility than that of someone that might be making 12 to $14 an hour or working as a waiter or server bartender, what have you. So just, okay. I'm not an economist. I don't know, but that's just yeah. common sense to me. Seems like uh, those are the folks that are going to have the hardest trouble. And then a class are going to have a little bit easier time. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, I, we'll just, we'll see how the rest of the year pans out and how the rest of COVID pans out for what they're going to do. But um, so what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success, Kevin? Yeah, no, it's a, that's, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think a big one for, for me, uh, just knowing how my brain works, knowing everyone's got weaknesses, right? Everyone's got strengths and weaknesses. And I think whenever you can, the sooner you can identify what each of those are and be honest with yourself, the, the, the faster you'll get further along, right? The faster you'll grow as an individual. And, um, you know, for me, it's been focused. I've always been one to, to, to preach on, you know, pick, pick a lane and stick with it and forget all the other noise. And when I say lane, I mean like an asset class, right? Like pick what you're going to do and, and, and focus on it and take the time, take the years it's going to take you to master it and become the best at it before looking at any other shiny object that there's going to be hundreds of them flying by you, right? All the time. You're always going to see, especially with social media now, right? Like there's not a day you can't jump on a Facebook <laughs> feed and see someone holding a check up for like a, you know, a closing they had or a refinance or something like that, or a deal they just bought. And so stick in your lane and just focus and put the time in that it takes to, to master a particular area of your business. And again, you know, if you're getting started, pick an asset class and stick with it before you think about even pivoting or adding another, like for us, we, we stuck with mobile home parks for darn near eight years before we even considered. we considered about three years ago of looking at parking. It's always been an asset class. We've always been intrigued by um, it's very much aligned with what we already do, but we just, we know that as soon as you start turning your head, that's when things start going wrong with your present business, right? Like you start losing focus. And so it took us a long time before we felt comfortable with our systems and processes and the team we had before we'd even consider um, not pivoting, but just adding another um, asset class to our business. Nice. How are you guys finding those assets? And I mean, is that the same thing? Direct mail brokers? Very similar way. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the parking sector is very fragmented, um, very much like mobile home parks probably were like a decade or two ago, you know, with very few large professional operators in the space, lots of mom and pops. And so, uh, you know, direct mail and cold calling has been, um, you know, the number one way. There's not really any, it's such a fragmented industry and niche that there's really only a few brokers in the country that even are the, you know, specialists in parking lots. And so, you know, even in mobile home parks, there's, I mean, no less than a hundred brokers that like that is their, their core business, you know, of, of mm -hmm. brokering mobile home parks, but parking lots, uh, again, I can count on one hand, uh, the brokers <laughs> I know of that actually advertise as being parking specialist. It's very few. Yeah. Interesting. So tell us about you. You have a podcast. Can you tell us about your podcast or podcasts? I didn't know if you had multiple. Yeah. Ones. Yeah. No, I've got actually have two. And so my, my primary podcast is called real estate investing for cash flow. I've been doing it for six and a half years now. And um, it's a commercial real estate investing show where we basically interview um, owners and operators, professionals that uh, represent every different asset class. And so, you know, folks like you, Charles, that do multifamily uh, just had a retail guy on yesterday, uh, interviewed a self storage guy the day before that. And we've covered literally the span of every asset class you can think of, including some very niche ones, such as marinas, uh, parking lots. Um, I just interviewed a guy a couple months ago that is the largest bowling alley owner in the United States, which is still a business. I mean, he's actually still, he's doing well. That's <laughs> so, awesome. Yeah. Again, there's a million different ways to make money in real estate. So that's, that's what that show is all about. And then I've also got the mobile home park investing podcast, which, uh, you know, as the name might say, it's all about mobile home park investing. Well, awesome. Well, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Obviously, we have your podcast, but uh, mm -hmm. for your Sunrise business? 
Yeah, yeah. So if you have an interest in what we're doing in the mobile home park space, uh, sunrisecapitalinvestors.com is our website. And then if you want to reach out to me and just learn more about me and what I've got going on, um, you can just go to my website, which is kevinbupp.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on today. Have a great rest of your day and uh, looking forward to connecting with you in the future. Thanks for having me, Charles. It's been a lot of fun. Talk to you soon. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.